Uh, we got youth class today. So if you are a youth and you want to go to youth class, go right out that door. I see a lot of people who aren't youth who are disappearing too. Again, the church runs off a gold star system and gold stars for running out during the sermon do not exist. So of course, they're all like five years old, so I don't think they care, but that's okay. Welcome back to you. I know you're not technically here, but welcome back from the land of Israel. I am actually really impressed. I, when we were texting back and forth yesterday, I was like, he's not actually going to make it today. Like, he's just going to sleep. So thank you for coming and being here with us after you got in last night from uh, the land of Israel. So Brent is back, and Brent will be back on the pulpit next week. Um, Thank you all for not cheering really, really loudly and making me feel bad about myself. Um, I'm excited for Brent to be back on the pulpit so that uh, I can focus in on some of the operation and logistics things that we've got coming up over the next couple of months. The next two weeks, uh, it's going to be a little unique. We've got our first ever youth summer camp. And so there are some kids coming in. Cam Zell's in the back of the room. Um, we're going to have some people here next week. We're going to have some people here the week after that. Not next week, but the following week. So that's two weeks from to now. Next week, we got Brent. The week after that, we're going to have P.D. Vanderwesthausen here uh, from Rise on Fire Ministries. So super excited. He's going to be one of the guest speakers at the youth camp. And so him and his wife, Christina, are going to stay after and uh, bless us with a sermon that week. And then before you know it, the summer will be over and we will be at Tabernacles. There are a couple of spots left for Tabernacles. Uh, both camping and, uh, or RVing and in tents. So, uh, and there's also cabins and lodges and stuff like that. There's plenty of those available if you contact this specific place um, down there at uh, Lake Murray in Ardmore. But uh, a family week, as I like to call it, where we get to just come together and hang out. Uh, we're not going to have teachings every day, and we're not going to have full-blown productions or anything. We're going we're gonna to do intimate worship, intimate prayer. We're going to do some fishing. We're going to do some just hangout times, uh, and, you know, some bonding times, stuff like that. So trust falls, you know, all the things to make it really awkward. So no trust falls. We're not doing trust falls. The, the insurance said no to uh, allowing people to fall backwards and us catching. So the insurance didn't say no. I just wasn't going to buy the insurance. So 70% of the kings of Israel listed in the book of Kings and Chronicles are listed as having the traits of being evil. 70% of Israel's kings. So most of us in this room come from a roots-based background. And in the roots of Christianity... Israel is elevated up, just kind of like in Christianity, sometimes they elevate the church above Israel. You know, sometimes we, we just kind of get out of kilter. And it's not one denomination or the other, it's just humans. We get out of kilter sometimes with, with the scriptures or ourselves. And so 70% of Israel, Israel is an established nation by God. It wasn't, it wasn't established by the hands of some man. It wasn't established because some ruler, some pharaoh came up and took power. It was established by the hands of God. But yet 70% of their leadership listed in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and in Chronicles are listed as evil. Ezekiel is a glimpse into God's divine glory, leaving the temple in Jerusalem and going out and speaking to men. Ezekiel has an encounter with God 
outside of the temple, which was not something that was regularly happening at that time of the scripture. Ezekiel 17, last week, we looked at the prophecy of the tree and the eagle and how Jesus was coming to be a shelter and a protection for all nations. We looked at Ezekiel 21, the prophecy of the king and the priest that were also tying back to Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, and the wording of Ezekiel 21 and how Jesus was the king that was coming. He was the king that was prophesied. The first 32 chapters of Ezekiel's are oracles and judgments and warnings of Israel's idolatry. Today, I want us to, as we're going back through this, last week we did a lot talking about Israel. I want, I want you to put yourself where it says Israel. Where it says Israel, I want you to put yourself. So the first 32 chapters of Ezekiel are really oracles and judgments and warnings for us, for our idolatry, for our missteps with the Lord, for our lack of intimacy with him, for our disobeying of the commandments, for our inability to love one another. Whatever your shortcoming is, we all have them. My list is long, but God is constantly warning us, just like he was constantly warning Israel, because this isn't just some historical book. It's not just some historical thing that happened. God doesn't just do something just for the sake of doing it. He does it so that it can be a living warning, a living movement in the past, the present, and the future. Yet in chapter 33, there was a major shift. Jerusalem had fallen to Babylon. They were in captivity. And then all of a sudden, things change. Now, if Hollywood would write stories along these lines and actually get really good actors. My wife was watching a show and I started watching it with her and I was like, man, this show is really, really well written. But this actor, like, this guy is worse than McGee and me. Like, some people laughed dating my age, but McGee and me is one of the most well done 80s, 90s children program for Christians that existed. It was way better than Veggie Tales. Yes, hands down. Matthew, you need to get your wife in order. <laughs> See, this is why I love having deacons that aren't afraid to speak up and tell me I'm wrong. Only on this case, McGee and me is way better than Veggie Tales. Like, we'll go into the reasons and we can write back and forth this week on why that is, and then we'll get together and discuss it over coffee. But McGee and me was this like interesting show. So I'm watching the show with my wife and, and the plots of these shows are, are pretty well written. Like the storyline, like if you can follow them, there's a good progression that's there. And then you're just like, I can't watch this guy or I can't watch that gal. Like every time there, there's a mannerism, whether it's the facial expression or something, it's, you're just like, man, that's fake. Like this guy is like really, really bad. And so it, they have not learned in Christian television and Christian cinematography, the Matthew McConaughey rule. The Matthew McConaughey rule is that Matthew McConaughey is Matthew McConaughey in every role he's at, and he just thrives in it. We could baseline that, and what we would see is that the stories of Ezekiel, if we could get the Matthew McConaughey rule, just be baseline in this storyline. It's one of the greatest stories that can be told. 
it's partially the basis of things like Superman and Batman and these superheroes and stuff like that, where, oh, hey, something's going on in the world. There's a good versus evil. And all of a sudden, somebody needs to come in and somebody needs to save the world. This is the entire Bible, is that God wanted to dwell with us. God wanted to be our leader. We chose not to reign with him because we knew better. And he keeps trying to send us a redeemer to get us back. This redeemer didn't come the first time like Superman. And not any of the Supermans, even the old ones where they had the really bad suits and now they have like the green screen. Like he didn't come like Superman. He came lowly. He came as a humble servant. And I know if you've been in church any, any amount of time of your life, if you watch Instagram, if you, if you watch TikTok and all the other things where you can get the leadership lessons and the Bible lessons and those types of things, we talk about it over and over and over again. But do we allow it to penetrate our heart? Do we allow it to penetrate our heart that there are good leaders and there are bad leaders? The book of Ezekiel shows us the contrast of those two things. And before we get into the last portion of Ezekiel this week, because Brent made sure to tell me I have to be off the stage next week for him to preach. No, he didn't tell me that. But before we get through that this week, it's important that before we move into what is the shift in chapter 34, the prophetic shift, that we understand that each and every one of us are leaders. Now, some of you own businesses. Some of you, you're a leader in management in a company. Some of you are the managers of your home. Some of you are managers in small groups, whether they're gatherings of hobbies or they're gatherings of spiritual things. But you're a leader in some place. Even the most introverted people sometimes are leaders. And so it's important for us to understand the Messianic prophecies of Ezekiel are for us to interact as positive leaders. Why? Is it because we, we want to write a book about leadership? No, it's because we're supposed to be the image bearer of Yeshua, of Jesus Christ on this earth. And if you're supposed to be the image bearer of Jesus on this earth, then you're supposed to lead and show leadership like Jesus, not like the 70% of the kings of the world. Why is this important? Because even when we disobey, God still promises that he will restore us to him. Which means if we're restored to him, if this is a historical document, this already happened, then that means that if we're like the 70%, we better get in line because if it happened then, it could happen now. And if it happens now, it could happen in the future. A lot of times we want to talk about the historical element or the futuristic element of prophetic text. But what about the now? What about the now when, when Isaac and I hang out? What about the now when the husbands and wives get together? What about the now on Monday when you go to work and you're leading somebody? How do you take what God has said in his text? Most of the people who have been in this room, you know about a lot of the history. You've heard a lot about what might happen in the future. And yet, we struggle with leading in relationship now. This is important because I want you to look today as we're going through these prophecies of Jesus, I want you to look at them 
And I want you to allow the Lord to come in and move inside you. And I'm not talking about just moving inside your head, because a lot of times we approach prophetic texts or we approach Bible studies or we approach church as, well, what can I learn about God today? Today, I want God to come and teach you something through the power of his spirit that will revolutionize your heart and will change how you walk as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, as a manager, whatever your role is, head of the mom's group for the co-op, whatever your role is. When we disobey God, he still promises to restore us if we let him. How do I know that? Well, in chapter 34 of Ezekiel, it says he'll bring us out of anarchy. Now, anarchy is not just political landscapes of the country. Anarchy can be your own rebellion in your own spiritual life. It can be your own rebellion in your home. It can be, it can be the rebellion of your children to the rules of your household. Anarchy, it isn't just political. A lot of times we like to look at the temporal. We like to look at those things and make those the emphasis. Meanwhile, we're in anarchy in our prayer, our prayer life. God's told us to do things and we're like, ah, we're going to do whatever we want. We're not going to listen to him. But yet he says he'll bring us out of anarchy in chapter 34. In chapter 35, he says he will give us a land. He will restore us from our shame in chapter 36. And in chapter 37, he gives us two promises. He will give us new life, and he will bring us together as one people. See, in that time when this was being written, a new king was coming, a perfect king was coming, and he would not rule out of self Self-desires for power, for gluttony, for influence, for pride. Church, Jesus is all over the Old Testament. Jesus is the center of every messianic prophecy that was ever given. And if you can find Messiah in there, you can become more like Messiah. Why? Because I've seen it happen in my own life. I've seen it happen in lives of other people. I've seen people who have led out of their own pride, out of their own selfishness. I have been that person. I have seen people who have walked in idolatry of themselves, of things, of television, of football, of food, of drink, of all kinds of things. And normally, they don't even realize how much harm they're discipling other people around them. You're being discipled every single time you're engaged in a, in a conversation or life with somebody else, whether you know it or not. You're either being discipled in a positive manner or in a negative manner. Well, this is the same thing we see here. There's negative leadership. This leadership was given power by God to do right by God's people, to be a shepherd to them. And instead, he saw them as a means for him to obtain authority, honor, power, control, gluttony. And they manipulated the people for their own gain, not for the best of all the people in their flock. Chapter 34, verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. 
This, this isn't positive. This is a judgment of the oracles of the most divine ruler, the best leader, the guy who wrote the top-selling leadership book of all time. And I know it doesn't have a fancy cover unless you're going on Amazon and buying all the new artwork ones, but the best-selling leadership book of all time in the Bible. The earthly kings who were not walking in the order of God used their powers to neglect the widows and the orphans, the hurting and the oppressed. In fact, in a lot of ways, they were the reason why there was widows and orphans and hurting and oppressed. They didn't go after the wayward persons, and they didn't go after those who knew not of God. They used their power for their personal greed, their riches, and to enslave people. Well, we've seen in Exodus, we've seen in our little corner of Christianity, every spring we keep Passover and we study and we memorialize the fact that God drew us out of that enslavement. And so then all of a sudden, what is God going to do? Fast forward some years, fast forward some kings, and we're now your own. The God-ordained kings are now enslaving his very people. In verse 10, we see that God was going to judge and remove those shepherds and restore his divine leadership and care for those people. See, there's a pattern in God's leadership. He gives people an opportunity. When they fail in that opportunity, he has to step in because he's the only one who's righteous. He's the only one who's holy. He's the only one who's divine. He has to step in and right the ship. In verses 11 through 16, we see that God is now going to seek out his sheep. He's going to provide a king and a leader that would not fail. That God would put his sheep first and go to the corners of the earth to gather them. In chapter 16, it says, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God was done playing games. Sinai didn't bring the garden back. It didn't change the hearts of the people. They were scared. Yet he wanted to dwell with them as the new shepherd king, as the new leader of Israel. But they were scared. They needed a man-made leader. And so the cycle went on and on and on and on again. And every time, each king of Israel had an opportunity to lead as an example of Jesus on this earth. And they did not. 70% of them did not. And some of them, even the most righteous of them, started off good, ended up bad. This should be a wake-up. This should be a warning to us. Not because there's some futuristic doom and gloom thing. It's because if we step out of line, God is forced to come in and write it. He gives us an opportunity every day to make decisions, to operate in the principles and the power of God. And if we continuously operate in the principles and the power of ourself in the flesh, sooner or later, he has to step in. But wait, verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. So wait a second, I, I thought God was going to reestablish himself like in the garden as the leader. Well, yes. Yes, he is. But he's also going to establish David as the leader. So 
all of a sudden God has handpicked again somebody that he believes can be a different shepherd king. Somebody who in the physical can be a manifestation of Jesus, of God on this earth in leadership. And just like in Isaiah 11 and Psalm 45, God is once again binding together the human element and the divine element. Christopher Wright, in his book, The Message of Ezekiel, says the coming ruler will embody all that the rule of Yahweh himself implies. Like the equally mysterious Emmanuel figure, his presence will embody the presence of God himself and all that comes with it. See, the placing of David as the king was the start of a new order. It was a foreshadow to the messianic, the Jesus prophecies. How so? Matthew chapter 1, Jesus' virgin birth and that he came as the son of David. Foreshadow of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, Jesus, the son of God. Luke chapters 1, verse 32 and 33 says, We'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Messianic prophecies of chapter 34 of Ezekiel, right there in Luke chapter 1. Jesus is the long-awaited shepherd king. Jesus is the lineage of David. Jesus is God in the flesh. The divine has come. The divine has come. John 10, 11, Jesus also says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, this is important for us to understand when we're looking at Ezekiel because one of the greatest issues God took with the kings at that point in time was that the life of the sheep didn't matter. Didn't matter. The evil kings were more worried with what life they were living than what life you were living as the sheep that were in the flock. Jesus comes and it's all different. It's all different. He comes and he humbles himself to where your life mattered more than his own. And the adversary constantly tried to send him, hey, save yourself. Hey, eat. Hey. But no, he had to show you what real leadership looked like because we screwed it up over and over and over and over again. This is why works-based salvation is so dangerous. There is no way you can be perfect and spotless without God. It's not possible. Humanity as a whole, our hearts as a whole, they struggle, they wrestle. Something happens and it's emotionally hard for us. And, and even if we can keep our tongue from not saying it, how many of us can keep our mind from not thinking it? And yet here comes Jesus to show us this is what it was supposed to be like. And this is what it will be like when all is said and done. I love going back during the week and creating the reels and the clips and the little shorts. You know, there's this whole thing you got to do to get out viral. That's the word. I'm getting old. Like, I'm starting to have these, like, 
moments where it's just like, whew, I, I hear it gets better, but who knows? No, Michael, no. But going back into the Lion's Roar series, and when Brent's talking about when Yeshua comes in and he starts reading from the, the scroll of Isaiah, and he's like, wrap it up, boys. Yes. This is what it's all about. Everything is about the fact that Yeshua is coming to show us that there is a better way. Because even in our attempt to be wise, even in our attempt to be knowledgeable, we're not God. And unfortunately, too many times, whether it's in churches or it's in ministries, people have put themselves in a position where they want you to treat them like they're God, or they want you to believe that they are God. I am not God. God is God. And this is important when we go through the prophecies of Ezekiel, and he makes this shift between negative leadership that's happened, the captivity of Babylon, and all of a sudden, here comes all the prophecies of David and Jesus. It's important that you understand life wants to enslave you and you want to be enslaved. Whether you know it or not, you want to be enslaved because that's what culture has created. That's the cycle. Psychology, if you've ever studied any psychology, we have an innate part of our DNA that wants to be liked and in groups. It doesn't have a marker in there that says, well, we have to be liked, we have to be treated well, and then we have to be elevated in the group. No, this is why cults exist. This is why we get into groups where we can be verbally abused or you can be emotionally abused or mentally abused because we just want to be with people. We want to be connected. And bad leadership, the perverted human heart, will take advantage of that for their gain. Jesus came so you had a way back to know that you were the most important thing to him. That's true biblical leadership. That you're the most important thing to Jesus. And so whether you're in your workplace and you manage employees, your people should be the most important thing to you. Your clients should be the most important thing to you. Your family should be the most important thing to you. Maybe you don't have any leadership role or any management role in the workplace. That's okay. In your home, you do. Husbands and wives, you're leaders in your home. So if you lead your children with an iron hand and abusive, you're exactly what Jesus was sent in Ezekiel to show you not to do. If you do it to your spouse... Jesus came so you would not lead like that. To lead in a way that you would lay down your life for the other person. That you would empower that person in God, in your marriage, with your children, with your friends. And if we can't get it right in our own home, in those relationships... Church, we're never going to get it right in here. And if we can't get it right in here, how are we ever going to make an impact out there? Somebody once said, well, I know your heart, Chris, is to make a difference in Norman and to make a difference in the community. But I, I hear that from a lot of churches. And then I look around my own neighborhood and I don't see any of you. You're not here. And that's pretty impactful when you hear that. But if we can't even start to stabilize ourselves in here and we live in that manipulative culture and we're trying to overlead other people negatively, those types of things, 
We don't want to take that to somebody else's door. If you have it in your home every night when you go to bed and you roll over and you're mad at your spouse or your spouse is mad at you or whatever it is, you're given an opportunity every single day to lead like Jesus, not like the people Jesus had to come to show you not to be. You have the opportunity to be a good shepherd to your spouse, to be a good shepherd to the children, to be a good shepherd to your grandparents, to be a good shepherd. Why? Because he said he was the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Well, if we're to be like Christ, then shouldn't we be laying down our life for the sheep too? Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. The law was perfect for what it was given to do. God was perfect, but humans are not. This is why the scripture says, be perfect, because you're not. I'm not. The flesh is weak. Our heart is weak. But yet God, again, was going to provide a solution. This is important, and I keep saying it, and you're like, okay, I got it. I got it. God provides a solution. It's important because we come from a background, and I see it every single week, whether I'm meeting with you or we're online or whatever. Like, I see it. We still think that somehow we can do something with our walk that will then make us righteous. Our righteousness comes from Jesus. Jesus alone is righteous. And what we do is we just want to be the image bearer of him. So when you're out there saying, well, I want to walk out this commandment to the best of my possibility. Okay, great. But when you're sitting there and you're so rigid, you have a heart of stone. And a lot of times we can't even see the plank in our own eye. Take a deep breath. I don't know who sings the song, but it just came to my mind. Fall into the arms of Jesus. If you are a Torah observant believer in Jesus, Jesus comes first. And through that salvation, then, then you want to obey him. You want to love him. You want to show him. This is what defines what's sinful and not sinful. And then the words of Jesus and the easiness of the yoke of his teaching of the Torah should not make you walk like this anymore. And so many people are walking around like this. It's okay. Take a deep breath. God is perfect, and he's going to put his spirit in you. He's going to put a new heart in you. He's going to teach you how to walk like him. If we keep trying to use our heads to say, well, in the first century, this is exactly how they walked, and this is exactly how we need to do it today. You're your own God. Get into the word of God. Get in a prayer closet and ask God to show you specifics of where you can change in your life. Remove the idolatry of self from your walk. 
Paul writes of this new heart that's prophesied in Ezekiel in Titus 3.47. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I've seen too many people say that Jesus is our salvation. We, well, we don't, we don't keep the Torah for our salvation and then walk differently. I've seen too many people say, well, the Torah guides my life. The commandments guide my life. And then I've watched them literally transgress the letter of the law repeatedly, let alone the spirit of the law that Jesus comes and clarifies through love and through mercy and through grace. How you speak to your spouse, how you go about your work, is everything in excellence. It should be in excellence because if we're the image bearer of Christ, Christ was excellent. He was perfect. He was perfect. He was complete. God is complete. We are not. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Paul writes about the unified spirit-transformed body living under the proper leadership that God had prophesied in Ezekiel. As the worship team comes, I know you're looking at me like, holy smokes, he's not teaching for an hour. When we started this church, nobody was allowed to teach for 35 minutes or longer. And I was a hypocrite. So I'm doing my dead level best to not be a hypocrite. Might be prophetic. It's the end of the world. Oh, wait, that's not what prophecy means. As we wrap up today, what leadership model are you currently walking in? Are you walking in the, the first half of the book of Ezekiel that brought about the idolatry, that brought about the enslavement of yourself? You are God's chosen people. God gave his life for you. When, when the first part of Ezekiel talks about the planting of the stick on the top of the mountain for all the nations to provide shelter. Last time I checked, we're from all the nations. Some of you even came from Kansas. That's pretty close to Babylon. Just saying. You ever been there? That's a joke. I'm sorry, Lord. What kind of leadership are we walking in? See, as I look around this room, I don't know everybody intimately, but I do know the majority of the people have walked in some Genesis to Revelation element of their life for a really long period of time. And so... I can stand up here and I can regurgitate the same things. Well, we got two sticks in one hand and this is for the two houses of Israel. And, and I can just regurgitate exactly what's been taught all these years. But the truth is, is almost everybody in this room has gone through something similar for many, many years. And sometimes we just miss the most basic of things in the prophetic text, which is you're screwing up you need to become more like Jesus. I know that's not going to get me a million hits on YouTube because I don't have some sort of mystery of the return of the gods or whatever it is or the key to unlock. All of those fancy phrases. 
But sometimes it's the most basic things in Scripture when you look at prophecy. And when you look at prophecy most of the time inside of the Scriptures, it's you're screwing up, repent. If you don't repent, I'm coming. If I come, I'm bringing judgment. It's actually going to be divine this time. It's going to be righteous this time. So you better just please repent. Okay, you're not going to repent. So now I'm going to come and bring judgment. And now all of a sudden I'm going to teach you and show you how to walk. And yet, here we are with the Bible in all the versions, in all the languages. And yet, in Norman, Oklahoma, we still walk in the same cycles. We still wrestle with the same things. Why? Because we still have a part of that 70% of the evil kings and the evil culture that are there in our heart. We still have a part in our heart of the garden when we're like, wait, did God really say that? Church, today, as as we have a response time, we have a time of prayer, Thomas and Michelle will be up here if you need prayer. You're given an invitation in the scripture and throughout every one of the prophecies to find Jesus. And some of you have found Jesus. Some of you found Jesus many, many, many years ago. Some of you put Jesus on a shelf there for a couple of years and you said, well, you know, the Torah, 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 Torah. But everything you do in your leadership, everything you do in reading the prophecies of God is all about we've messed up and we need God. Well, God has come. God has given us the teachings. God has given us what I believe is perfection. If Jesus said it, I want to do it. If the Pharisees said it, I want to see if Jesus said, should I do it that way or not? Because we have a tendency to become pharisaical in our own life. We have a tendency to say, I know how to do these things. And the more you step out of what you actually know how to do, the more you can find yourself being able to lay things down before the hands of God. Because at the end of the day, if you want to be delivered from something, it's God who's going to deliver you. You can't deliver yourself. You can abstain, but God can deliver. Kudos to you if you are abstaining from idolatry. Kudos. But God wants to remove the idolatry from the midst of Israel, from the midst of your heart. He says he wants to literally take the heart of stone out of your body, and he wants to replace it with something that only he can do. So today, as we pray, as we sing for the sake of the world, it wasn't for the sake of the Messianics. It wasn't for the sake of, of the Normanites. It wasn't for the sake of the Hebrew roots or the Baptists or the Pentecostals. For the sake of the world, for all humanity and all creation, God came and gave his son so that we could see what it was like to have good leadership. So we could see what it was like to actually be led by Jesus. Today, what selfishness do you have inside of yourself? 
What tactics of bad leadership do you continue to operate in, whether it's at your work, in your marriage, with your children? What pride, what, what selfishness do you continue to gluttonize over in your life? Because if you have those in your life and you can't lay them down and you can't repent and you can't allow God to come in, then God can't put the new heart inside of you. He can't put the new spirit inside of you because you're still in idolatry with Israel. So church today, I believe God wants each and every one of you to remove something from your life, to repent of something in your life says we are supposed to die daily, which means that we sin daily. So what is it? What is it today that we need to remove from our rebellious heart so that we don't end up in our divine judgment with the Creator? And we can be empowered to live the same way that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So today the altar's open, your seats are open. I don't need you to confess it to me. But the Bible says that we are to confess and we are to repent. And so whether you gotta do it in your seat, whether it's you gotta do it in your own mind, whether you wanna do it up front, whatever it is, this is between you and the Lord. What do you need to get right with today? What bad leadership style do you need to remove so more Jesus can come in you? Whatever that is, this is the time to lay it down.